Lance Morrow is an author, a writer, and an essayist. He joined Time magazine in 1965. During his time there, Morrow covered the Detroit riots, the Vietnam War, the Nixon administration, and the Watergate scandal. In 1976, he became a regular writer of essays for Time magazine, also wrote more Man of the Year cover articles than any other reporter. From 1996 to 2006, he was a professor at Boston University. His several books include Evil and Investigation, God and Mammon, published in March of 2021, and his latest, The Noise of Typewriters, to be issued in January of 2023. Lance Morrow, you are not but a couple years older than I am, and when you get to be this age, you start thinking about your life and your how long you're going to be around. How do you approach it? Because you went through some bad times with your heart attacks years ago. What What do you think of being older or old age? Uh, I'm actually amazed by it because I had I did have some serious uh, heart trouble, which uh, thankfully the the technology of uh, heart repair and so on uh sort of kept up with my situation so i've been uh, i've been doing actually quite well um I'm, when i write uh a lot of the columns that i write now for the wall street journal and for city journal uh, i make an a special effort to bring in the history that i remember from when i was young which is you know in the 50s and 60s and so on uh and i do that very deliberately because i think there's a uh, there's a lack of historical perspective in a lot of the commentary that is going on now for the very good reason that we are in a different stage now technologically and politically and in all sorts of ways and yet the connections to the past and the patterns of the past seem to me to be extremely important. And it seems to me that ignorance of precedents and the earlier history of the country and so on is is uh, dangerous, not only damaging, but dangerous. So anyway, that's a grandiose way of saying that, that uh, I do try to take advantage of the fact that I'm old and that I remember a lot. I have a very good memory for for uh, things that happened a long time ago. My parents were both journalists, and so I was kind of aware through them of various aspects of public life and American politics and so on. And I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, so I, I do, I try to take advantage of uh I'm thinking of Reagan's crack when he was running against Mondale in uh, 1984, and he said, I'm not going to take advantage of my opponent's youth and inexperience. Uh, so so I'm simply trying to take advantage of my age in, in the way that I write these things. It says... Uh... When you go to Amazon looking at your books and all that, there's a one coming out in 2023 called The Noise of Typewriters. Have you finished that? Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm uh, copywriting it. It's being copyrighted now, and, and uh, so we're just closing it up. Don't want to uh, go too far ahead on it, but what what's it about, and, and uh, what's been your experience writing this particular book? Well, it's a, uh, it's a series of 
essays, uh, really. It's a long essay, uh, like like that book called God and Mammon that you mo- mentioned a moment ago. It's it's kind of a long essay. It's actually a rather short book. But uh, I'm interested in the way that uh, journalism affected um, public life in the um, in the 20th century. This is about basically 20th century journalism and certain aspects of 20th century journalism uh, and how the way that journalism performed uh, touched and changed, actually changed history uh, during that time. For example, the uh, the famous case of Walter Durante, the uh, New York Times correspondent in Moscow in 1932, who won a Pulitzer Prize for international reporting with a series of essays of, of uh, rather of reports on Stalin, praising Stalin uh, extravagantly, just at the moment when Stalin was starving to death, uh, some seven or eight million Ukrainians and people in the North Caucasus and so on, uh, because they were resisting uh, his plan to collectivize the farms. And Durante's reports in the New York Times not only won the Pulitzer, but they got the attention of Franklin Roosevelt, and he decided to recognize the Soviet Union, uh, which had long been a goal of the uh, Soviets and was an important thing. Uh, He recognized the Soviet Union very much uh, influenced by Durante and, uh, and his articles. Um, and that was a, that was one instance of the way in which, uh, the performance of journalism, uh, touched history, altered it. You could, you could look at the, I also look at the, the Vietnam War and, uh, the, uh, Tet Offensive, for example, in 1968, early 68, when, uh, the, uh, the the media construed the communists' Tet Offensive as a great communist victory, as a great North Vietnamese victory, but in actual military fact, it was a defeat for uh, General Giap and Ho Chi Minh and the, the North Vietnamese communists. But uh, it was an immense psychological victory for them, for the for the communists because it broke the back of the American will uh, to fight the war. And from February 68 on, Americans really had gave up. It was the beginning of their giving up on Vietnam. And uh, so that was another way in which uh, the performance of journalism uh, altered uh, or, or certainly seriously affected uh, the course of history. Um, so it's it's the pieces like that, but it's also quite personal. I, I talk, I tell a lot of private stories and personal stories because, as I say, both my parents were journalists, and uh, it was kind of a family trade. And uh, because of them, I grew up regarding history as a sort of small town. You know, there was, in, in other words, the, the doings of presidents. They were always you know, coming home to dinner and talking about 
Harry Truman, whom they knew very well and who called my father by his first name. And and uh, they talked about they they uh, they had dinner with Richard Nixon sometimes when he was a congressman. And so there was a sense of uh, I had I grew up with a sort of sense of um, uh, that, that these big public figures were actually uh, personal relations in some way. And uh, anyway, that's that's roughly what the book is uh, is about. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. As I was thinking about this conversation, I went, through, I wrote down a, a list of things that happened in both of our lives and wanted to go over them very quickly and then get your reaction to it. Um, President Johnson left office because of the Vietnam War after one term. President Nixon resigned before he got impeached and convicted and sent out by the Congress. President Clinton was impeached but not convicted. Mm. President Trump was impeached twice and not convicted. Vice President Agnew had to leave office because he was a crook. Jim Wright resigned because he was accused of ethics violations back in 1989. Newt Gingrich resigned as Speaker and left Congress because of an ethics charge. Bob Livingston, who was chosen by the Republicans to be the successor to Newt Gingrich, had to announce in the Congress that he had had affairs and would step back. Senator, uh, President John Kennedy is, has, since he was assassinated, has been written about many times as being a womanizer and having affairs with an 18-year-old. I could go on, but his... And then there's Dennis Hastert, who went to prison for sexually abusing yeah. high school kids. The point I'm mentioning all this is, is this an unusual period in history? Uh, you mean the, the period starting with, say, Jack Kennedy up to the present? Yeah, or, all, all, or, uh, of these, all these people I've mentioned having to resign and you be impeached and all well, that. Well, it seems to me that uh, that one factor that you have to bear in mind is that the, uh, the uh, manners, if you will, of the uh, journalists have changed immensely since the 60s. And what was not mentioned about presidents and public figures before uh, became the object of investigation, you know, uh, of not only curiosity, but investigations and, and uh, very urgent, uh, um, intrusive investigations. I, I'm thinking of the obvious case of Franklin Roosevelt's, uh, um, well, not only his uh, his romance with Lucy Mercer, but uh, also the, the the very fact of his uh, being uh, crippled by polio and the fact that the uh, White House press corps was very protective of that fact, of, of the fact of his having um, wearing these braces on and not being able to, to walk in any normal way. And uh, the White House photographers actually declined to photograph him when he was being lifted into a car, for example, 
and uh, there, there were one or two cases where uh, they they destroyed. They took the, the guy took a picture and they took the plate out of the old speed graphic camera and actually uh, exposed the uh, the plate and uh, destroyed it. Uh, but that's not quite responsive to your question. It, it it seems to me that one if you if you look back in American political history, you can find uh, all the scandal you care to look for. Uh, starting, I mean, you see, I suppose you could go back to Thomas Jefferson, and Sally Hemings, and talk about uh, there, there were many uh, um, there were reports in the press at that time talking about Dusky Sally and and all of that, uh, and about his having a mistress who was also his slave, and uh, and you could go up through. <laughs> Grover Cleveland and Warren Harding, and, and uh, if you're looking for the sexual stories, and uh, there were um, any number of, uh, especially in the Harding administration, uh, uh, cases of um, financial uh, misdeeds, and, and in, in the Ulysses Grant's uh, administration, although he himself was personally honest, he he had very bad judgment about some of the people that he trusted, and uh, there were that's that, that sort of scandal. So, I, I think it would be hard to say that that uh, the period that you talked about is uh, is more scandalous than others, but it, it certainly is the case that journalism itself, uh, the rules of journalism, and the manners and protocols of journalism have surely. Uh, changed a very great deal that every, anything anything and everything uh, becomes uh, fair game in in a president's conduct or any politician's conduct so um, I mean a figure like Trump is sort of unusual uh, to, to say the least I mean he's he's unique I would say <clears throat> um, but uh I don't know. What do you think? I mean, you you went all through all this stuff the same as I did. Uh, I uh, I've always my my father was a uh, reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer before he became an editor at the Saturday Evening Post, and later he became a very senior aide to Nelson Rockefeller, who of course had his own scandals, and. Uh, as a matter of fact, my father was the guy who announced Rockefeller's death on the night that he was that he died uh, in the uh, in that apartment on West Fifty Fourth Street with uh, uh, the the woman who was his mistress. And uh, my father always had a uh, a very slightly amused sort of W. C. Fields attitude toward politicians and their behavior he he had that hl uh, mencken sense of politicians as inherently probably being crooked and uh very likely being idiots and uh, and to be to be amused by um sometimes anyway uh, not in a malicious way necessarily but uh uh, he didn't. He he sort of assumed that kind of behavior. He thought that that was part of the American scheme, and and uh, 
So he was, uh, I never saw him uh, shocked by uh, this sort of behavior. I remember, you know, I remember uh, Estes Kefauver was uh, uh, a uh, senator from Tennessee who became famous uh, in the um, early 50s because he conducted some Senate hearings into crime, organized crime, and he became uh, Adlai Stevenson's uh, vice presidential running mate in 1956. And um, Keith Hoover's wife was a friend of my mother's, and so my mother knew a lot of inside stuff about him. And, I mean, this is a guy running for vice president of the United States, and he... he um, he got into some fantastic scrapes because of uh, extremely heavy drinking and womanizing. And uh, these things never uh, saw the light of day, uh, of print, that is. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of it. I mean, Wilbur Mills, who was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee uh, for many years, was a raging, raging alcoholic. And uh, he once, after he sobered up, he he confessed that uh, <laughs> that he couldn't remember anything that had happened in the previous eight years. <laughs> this was a guy who signed off on every dollar, <clears throat> every dollar that was uh, spent by the federal government. So, um, so the, I think I think anywhere you dropped your bucket in the historical sea. Uh, going back a couple hundred years, anywhere, anywhere you dropped your bucket, you would come up with some some uh, interesting uh, specimens of scandal and, and uh, misbehavior. I want to read uh, from a recent column that you wrote that was published in the Wall Street Journal on June 24th and get you to expand on it. You say um, in a column that's headlined, could this be an antebellum age? You say the country's political manners are not what they were. To this, the progressives' cult of change replies, so what? And Donald Trump agrees. You cannot make an omelet without breaking eggs. There is truth in the thought. On the other hand, it is the favorite metaphor of monsters. The law itself, the principle of law, the authority of law, is sorely tested and feels as if it is being broken. When prosecutors refuse to prosecute real crimes, society is morally underwater. Tell us more. Well, I think that I, I was I was thinking about the the approach of uh, July Fourth and how people are feeling, and especially in the wake of the the um, January sixth hearings. And uh, I think there, it seems to me, there is a a, a sense that something in the law has uh, been abandoned or broken it, it, it I think partly is a result of the uh, the two years experience with the pandemic but it also the, the with the George Floyd death in Minneapolis and then the subsequent uh, summer in which there were so many uh, violent uh, protests, violent and otherwise, but a lot of videos of, of uh, incredible violence and burning of police cars, burning of police stations, uh, attacking the federal courthouse in uh, 
in Portland and, and all of that, it seems to me that people have much less confidence now that the, that the, um, the law is a, uh, is working properly and that it can be trusted. I think trust is a huge, huge word always in politics and the, the level of trust is way, way down, I would say, in terms of uh, the rule of law on either side. I mean, it, 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 it's a pervasive. It's from, from left to right, and the uh, the villains are left or right, depending on where you, you yourself are located on the ideological spectrum. But uh, it seems to me that the trust in the law itself uh, is much diminished from what it was. And I think this is also a function of the fact that we seem to be getting um, very, very third-rate leadership uh, on a lot of levels. Uh, Partly it's this gerontocracy. There are too many many very old people in in the positions of the uh, greatest power. And uh, I I think that... uh, added to the to the fact that there's such a deep division politically between the left and the right or whatever you want to call it between the trumpists and the otherwise a a, a divide that has only been dramatized by the uh, Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court uh, the and incidentally the, the Supreme Court itself is a is getting to be a, 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 a very unfortunately uh, an example of the lack of trust. The people, the agitation, especially on the on the left, to uh, delegitimize the court, especially because of uh, Dobbs, but also because of the gun decision uh, recently. Uh, that is an illustration, it seems to me, of the weakening of the civic uh, morale and a weakening of the uh, of the trust that people really need to have. Uh, Americans have always been at each other's throats, and they've always they've always been we've always been a binary country, and that we, you know, the, uh, north and south, and east and west, and. Uh, uh, populist, you know, the Eastern Seaboard and Jacksonians and uh, endlessly you can, you can find these binaries. But uh, it seems to me that in the 21st century, it comes into a new uh, a, a dangerous stage, uh, partly because of the social media and just the uh, the instantaneous nature of information, and, and uh, uh, I, I don't think that the United States is very good is in a very good place at the moment. Uh, I can remember the '60s being pretty bad, but uh, it seems to me that the current uh, mood and the state of um, people's minds is is not very healthy. As I was uh, reading some of the things you've written in the past and looking around the web and all for video, I found one on 
YouTube, and it actually turned out to be an interview that I did with you several years ago. Um, but the the odd thing was, uh, you have we they took our video, they took my questions out, and this oh. is this is for and this is interesting. I want to get your reaction to it. This is for an organization called ASMR. It stands for Auto Sensory Meridium Response. And, and if you haven't seen it, you ought to look it up. And the reason is, and I'm not an expert on this, I haven't done a lot of deep research, but this outfit looks for people who are soothing, who they can listen to and be comfortable with. They clearly took my voice out because it's harsh. But... And they put the questions on the side. I mean, I, I, they didn't ask our permission to do this. They just did it. But you are one of those that they have used. I just wondered if you have often thought of yourself as soothing when you give a speech or talk. <laughs> or soporific. <maybe. laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the funniest thing I ever heard. I, I, the, the, I mean, what a world. It would, you'd, you'd have a whole thing that would be devoted to the idea that uh, you would address i mean is this to put people to sleep or or uh, it's to calm them uh, i think i mean there's yeah, millions yeah. Of, there's millions of these things i guess but uh, that's amazing yeah amazing anyway yeah. look it up it's auto sensory meridian response asmr and maybe we can talk more that, about it that's sometime. amazing <laughs> uh as a matter of fact i mean there is something in that in in the if i may analyze my own soporific qualities i have always tried i think whether consciously or unconsciously for all these many many years is is to try and understand i did to and not to telegraph my own strong political opinions, but rather to understand either side and to try and conciliate in some way if it's possible. And uh, in other words, I think my natural temperament is against um, extreme, you know, it's my natural tendency is to look at the other side or, or to try and uh, to try and explore the the uh, other side or both sides I, uh, I remember it in uh, in 1988 at the time of the first intifada uh, in I, Time magazine sent me to um, Israel and to the West Bank and Gaza and I spent months over there um uh, sorting out i wrote two cover stories for time magazine one on the israeli 40th anniversary of the uh, founding of israel and the other on the situation of the palestinians and i was i would spend i would go up to the west bank or gaza and i would spend weeks listening to people and just taking down their life stories and so on then i would go into israel and and uh, uh, talk to all kinds of people and, and, and listen to their life stories. And I understood, I think, the point of view of either side pretty thoroughly. In other words, I could put myself in the position of, but every time I left Lode Airport and, and flew back to New York, I would be relieved of a tremendous headache because the, the, 
the effort to reconcile these two different universes uh, in that one small place of Israel and the West Bank uh, gave you a splitting head. I mean, it just it was very, very hard. And I'm beginning to feel that way about this country. Let's go back to your early years when you were a page in the United States Senate. What do you remember from those times? Well, it was uh, it was 1953. It was just the beginning of the Eisenhower administration. I had a summer job as a Senate uh, page boy because a, a senator from Michigan named Potter had a page who had asthma, so he he had to go home in the summertime. He couldn't stand Washington summers, uh, but so I filled in with him for uh, uh, for him for a couple of months in, in the Senate. It was a it was a remarkable Senate. Uh, Richard Nixon was in the uh, presiding officer's chair as vice president. Very young and skinny John Kennedy was there. Joe McCarthy was in full cry. Uh, Joe McCarthy of, <clears throat> of Wisconsin and his uh, crusade. Um, Lyndon Johnson was the minority leader. And I did a lot of running of errands for him. Uh, Everett Dirksen, William Nolan, uh, <clears throat> Hubert Humphrey, <clears throat> who was an extremely nice guy, by the way. He, he was very nice to the pages and kind of helped us out. Uh, I was very young. I was I was actually under underage, but they I was 12 years old, but they kind of slipped me in. Uh, <clears throat> but... Um, the, the working in that, I, I absolutely love. I did it for two summers, and I loved it. I just, I was fascinated by it, fascinated by the people. Uh, being in the pay in in that situation and up close to these people, and having a sense of the way that the Senate operated, uh, and having a sense of their personalities, uh, gave me a feeling that I mentioned earlier that that history was sort of a small town and that and indeed Washington in those days was kind of a small town and uh, I used to play touch football with Bobby Kennedy over at Georgetown at the uh, Georgetown playground on 34th Q and I've been on that same playground I would play softball with uh, Scoop Jackson of Washington uh, Washington State um but it, it was that Senate thing was gave you a uh, gave me a a sense of awe about the whole business, but also um, a sense seeing them so up close and so on uh, <clears throat> also disabused me of. Uh, it's it's funny I had a, a, both a, a feeling of great characters and yet of of uh, a very fallible, uh, very mortal-type uh, ordinary characters. Uh, I remember one day that uh, Kennedy had been out because he'd had an operation on his back, and he he showed up at the back of the Senate, the, the, the double doors that opened at the uh, top of the center aisle, and it was a it was a Saturday morning, and there were only there were some senators there. Than some people in the gallery, but this 
skinny guy in a suit that was didn't quite fit him and so on uh, with the big thatcher of hair came in the doors and stood there leaning on his crutches and every eye in the place went to him and he had uh, some star quality that was that was very interesting and, and <clears throat> i had no particular reason to know that he was a great celebrity but uh but there was something there was something in that moment that was arresting and uh, i remember one day uh through those same doors came this apple-cheeked little old guy uh with white hair and bristling eyebrows and it was herbert hoover and he had uh eisenhower had come in and so the republicans were back in power and Herbert Hoover could show his face again in, in uh, Washington, and he came to visit the Senate, and so we all lined up and shook hands with him, which, which I've always said, uh, thought was funny that I can, I can say that I shook hands with Herbert Hoover, which puts puts me back uh, <laughs> in degrees of separation, puts me quite a ways back. What do you think the the reaction of young people today in the Senate would be compared to when you were there. I mean, you you, I said, you teach. I mean, you taught for a long time, so you had young people in your classroom at Boston yeah. University, and I'd be interested in your reaction to uh, what they were interested in, what their attitude is about everything today. I I think that I suspect that that uh, it's not too different now. Although I don't know, that's an interesting question. I I. Uh, I suspect that the dynamic as between the private and the public, I've always been interested in that, in that relationship between the, the private world and the public world, between private character or, or that is say character and policy, for example. I've always thought that was fascinating. And when you're, when you're as young as I was and you're very, impressionable and you remember everything you remember every little detail of of, uh, of every day and uh, to see lyndon johnson for example uh in action as he was then my boss was a guy named bobby baker whom you and i remember but some some people won't but he was a uh, he was a young protege of of Lyndon Johnson, who later got into all sorts of trouble for shady dealings. Um, but Bobby was, uh, to, to watch Bobby operating and to watch Lyndon Johnson operating, and the, the, just the body English, for example, the way that Johnson would put his big hands on a guy's shoulder and sort of massage the man's shoulder as he was talking to him. He'd get right into his face and he was giving him a, <laughs> it's the strangest thing. He was giving him a body massage on the back of his neck and the back of his shoulders as he was persuading him, as he was uh, working him, you know, and trying to get him to change his vote or whatever he, the purpose was. But uh, uh, it was it was very interesting to see that. And I suspect that today. Uh, that probably would not have changed. I imagine that pages and interns at the White House and so on would have uh, something of the same reaction. Uh, it's a, I had a real 
reverence for the Senate. I mean, I, I developed a real awe and and uh, uh, which is one reason I, I reacted very strongly against the uh, January sixth thing because it just it, it looked to me like a desecration that uh, was intolerable. But um, I, I suspect that that young people today would would probably feel something along the same line. Uh, it's hard to say. Speaking of January the 6th, th- th- this just happened. And by the time people hear this, it will be uh, <laughs> the way, way things tra- travel so fast, it would be history. What was your reaction, if any, to General Michael Flynn when they asked him the question in the January 6th hearings uh, in the research part of it? Do you believe in the peaceful transfer of power? And he took the fifth. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, what is this all about? Well, I, I have the same reaction that uh, uh, who, who was it recently who, uh, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting, but was asked to define, can you tell me what a woman is? And, uh, and said, no, uh, it was in a congressional hearing, but I, I, I was not listening or watching when Flint did that. But uh, that's just—it's just astonishing. It's just uh, I, I, this is part of what I was talking about earlier. Just the, the in talking about trust and, and uh, there's. It, I wish there were a reset button. You know, this is this is the sort of we've been here before, of course, but but uh, it it really is uh, difficult and and sort of appalling. You've um, supposedly you can confirm this written over 150 articles in Time magazine cover stories, and um, as you look back on it, I don't want to ask you what your favorite was, but I would like to ask you. Uh, what were a couple of cover stories or long articles you wrote that uh, you think had the biggest reaction? Um, my first cover story for Time was about the... Uh, I went to work for Time in 1965, uh, and and uh, they put me to work doing the people section, which I hated, uh, the, the back page and the gossip items. But then I, I wrote national news, and my first um, cover story for Time was uh, the 1967 riots in Detroit. Uh, it was, uh, the, there were many riots in those days, or many protests and uprisings, or whatever one calls them now. But uh, I wrote about the Detroit situation. Uh, I'm trying to think. I, uh, there are so many of them. I, I actually did not greatly enjoy writing time cover stories. I wrote well over 150 of them, and including a lot of their man of the year, as they were called then, man of the year cover stories. And uh, the 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 reason I didn't like doing them very much was that they were they tended to be a little bit formulaic. And uh, or more than a little, they they had a certain way of running, and it was hard to break out of that mold. When they uh, when Time uh, started its essay page, 
uh, Henry Grunewald was the managing editor, and, and he, he uh, started that page uh, partly uh, for my sake so that I could, you know, have a... And uh, when that happened, it, it became possible over a period of time to write in a much more individual way. But time had for, for years uh, had its its own formulas and its own um, style uh, uh, once fairly notorious. I mean, you you will recall at least the, you, the uh, in 1936 when uh, Wolcott Gibbs of The New Yorker wrote that famous parody, which is still brilliant, uh, of Time magazine, of backwards run sentences till reels the mind, uh, you know, talking about all the time mannerisms and uh, pretensions and so on. Um, anyway, I didn't, I didn't greatly uh, uh, enjoy writing the cover stories. I, I, there was one instance when uh, my wife, uh, Susan Bryn Morrow, who's a, a writer herself, was was over in Egypt, and she's she's uh, an expert on uh, Egypt and hieroglyphs and things like that. And she uh, she called me and said, "This was this was, oh, gosh, it was thirty years ago." Uh, she she told me that Mount Sinai, which she knew very well, and she knew the monks at St. Catherine's Monastery there. Uh, that Mount Sinai was in danger because they were building cable cars and they wanted to turn it into a sort of tourist trap. And so I wrote an essay immediately for Time, which, amazingly enough, Time immediately printed, uh, mocking this idea of, of cable cars on, on Mount Sinai, of all places, and, you know, turning turning a, a spot as august as Mount Sinai into a tourist trap, and by God, within um, a couple of days, they abandoned the project, and uh, they said, uh, we never intend to do, to do that, and in fact, we're going to stop doing it. Uh, and that was, that I think was probably the most immediately effective thing I ever wrote for time. Uh, it got results right away. What's the difference between Time Magazine when you were there and today? Oh, Time is uh, vastly, vastly different from... Uh, I came in, I, I really had the best of it from from uh, 65 through uh, 2005, I'm talking about 40 years, and uh, it started out uh, under loose Time was was very. There were no bylines, for example. The bylines came in in the early seventies, and that was a big step. Uh, the difference, the difference between time today uh, and time then is so vast as as to uh, as to be difficult to describe. That what happened was that I mean the the Time magazine under Henry Luce, and for some time afterward, he died in, he, he resigned in 64, and he died in 67. Um, time under Luce had a tremendous amount of money. It was the golden age of magazines, and time was rolling in dough, and they could, they could afford to do things up in a big way. They had bureaus all over the world. They spent a lot of money on every bureau. The Time Bureau chief was a kind of ambassador 
in in uh, in Rome or in Cairo or in Bangkok or wherever the the uh, the time bureau chief was almost a personage. He was a minor personage and uh, could talk to anybody. Could it, it, time? It's it's difficult to uh, get people today to understand how important magazines were in that era before all the media that we we know now and the electronics and so on but magazines were tremendously important and uh and time was right up there in the in the top uh, top tier the half dozen or so and time had tremendous influence i believe on the uh american middle class there was a guy named hutchins who was had been the uh, chancellor at the University of Chicago, and he claimed that Time magazine had more impact on the American mind than the entire American system of public education. And it it sounds like an exaggeration, but there's something to it. Um, it. It really was very important. So a huge difference between then and now is that Time was had a lot of money and it was very influential and its opinions mattered. And today time is another magazine among many magazines. It does some things very well. I don't, I haven't seen it for a little while, but it, uh, it does some things quite well. And then it's got some, some fine writers on it and so on, but it's an entirely different dynamic uh, in its relationship between the magazine and the readership because the entire framework of communications and media has so profoundly altered with, uh, with the coming of, of the uh, electronics and everything that they have brought with them. What would, if you had to make a list of five of the most powerful media institutions today, what would you put on that list? Today, um, well, I think you'd have to you'd ha- you'd have to put the New York Times, which uh, of course is is uh, much much changed from what it used to be. Um, I would have to. I think certainly Facebook is just as a, as a uh, aggregator and distributor of of. Uh, from the the Twitter, Twitter is certainly. Uh, I, I don't know if that's what you're talking about. The the, but anyway, I'll just. Uh, Twitter is enormously important uh, because of the speed and uh, the enormous size of the uh, the enormous number of people that can be reached. Uh, very rapidly. I was, I was, I, for, uh, I had dinner with Britt Hume uh, a couple of months ago, uh, and he was talking about Twitter, and he said that he spends a lot of time every day on Twitter because he regards it as so important. Which is, I don't, I'm not on Twitter, and uh, I, I'm not, I, I can't really, I don't have a good feeling for it, but. It seems to me that the the uh, what you might call the metaphysics of of information and journalism got to be changed very 
significantly by the nature of Twitter, by the uh, the speed, the efficiency of uh, which it reaches all kinds of different people in different categories. Um, so I would, I would, I would certainly list Twitter. Uh, I'm not very good at, at uh, communications today. I really, I, I feel as if that's that's a uh, an area in which my age is probably uh, uh, a factor because I'm just it's not it's not my immediate thing. I think the Wall Street Journal uh, does a does a very good job at what it does, and I'm I've been very happy to uh, to be doing pieces there. When you were teaching at Boston University, what uh, what subject did uh, you teach? Well, I was teaching the essay, a course that I enjoyed very much, and I was teaching uh, presidential history. The, uh, the actually the the press and the presidency, the relations between the the press and the presidency, and uh, I was mainly just telling them stories and and talking about the, the themes that I that I cover in my journalism is how journalism you know, would touch history in one way or another. So what did your students at the time uh, use as their number one way of, of staying up with the news? Um, it was a sort of transition time. I, I left there, oh, 15 years ago, and uh, it was... It was before the onset of the full. It was before um, iPhones, I guess. And but and anyway, it was it was before the onset of the full social media. Um, uh, people people switching over uh, to to pure electronics. So they were. Uh, I was trying to get them to. Uh, to read the you know the Washington Post and the New York Times and and so on, um, they were it, it was a very uh, much a patchwork of, of stuff. As to tell you the truth, I think they got most of their information from John Stewart's uh, comedy uh, TV show. Uh, I remember that when when Stewart was and and he he did his themes were very political and. Uh, uh, they took their politics and their information a lot from that. I, I, now that I think of it, I, I believe that they got an awful lot of their uh, information or pseudo-information or opinions from um, entertainment rather than from what we would have called journalism. So we'll wrap this up, but I want to ask you about the essay. What is an essayist. I think the essay is the most wonderful form uh, because you can do anything with it. You can you can go anywhere with it. It's it's. Um, uh, I used to tell my students that an essay is the uh, adventures of an idea in the mind of the writer, and uh, if if. An essay is done honestly. You say, "Well, this. Well, what if this?" And so on. Uh, you, it's a way of arguing with yourself. It's a, it's a way of. It's different from a column, a newspaper column, because a newspaper column has a tendency to uh, to want to make a specific point. An essay seems to me is is a little more civilized in that in that it uh, it is not 
leaping to a conclusion, but rather it's a way of thinking through something. And I believe that every essay has its own form. It's every idea for an essay has it takes the form that it needs to take if it's done well. And so I I think it's a, a wonderful, extremely adaptable, uh, very useful uh, form. And I think that it's that that an essay is is of course can be anything. Shakespeare's soliloquies are all essays. They're they're very tightly machined essays. Uh, Moby Dick is essentially a series of essays that is held together by a melodrama of this crazy guy looking for a white whale. But the 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 bulk of Moby Dick is, is the series of essays on whaling and the whiteness of the whale and all of that. Um, and I, I think the... Uh, it, an essay can be almost anything, but I, I think it's a it's a wonderful form, and uh, uh, it, it it gets you in a little trouble where journalism is concerned, of course, because uh, essays are, uh, tend to be personal and or, or may be personal anyway, and uh, and opinionated, and uh, journalism uh, as we still, I think are trying for some uh, sense of objectivity and, and uh, uh, just the facts and all of that. That's always a struggle. To That's a whole other subject, of course. Next year, Lance Morrow's next book will be The Noise of Typewriters. Those of you who haven't read some of the other books, one of them's called Evil, An Investigation. One of them's called God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. And then there's, years ago, the best year of their lives, Kennedy, Nixon, and Johnson in 1948, learning the secrets of power. Lance Morrow, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 